to see you for another episode of Diffusion. This week we're sending our own Jackie Hayes to the movies and Mark West will be peering out at our not-so-close neighbour Pluto. But first, let's head over to Ian Wolfe to catch up on this week's science news. NASA has finally admitted that they've lost nearly 700 tapes of high-resolution video of the Apollo 11 astronauts walking on the moon. But that may be because they didn't check out the dark side. The video cameras that were carried by Apollo 11 were of a special low-power design that captured 10 frames a second by very sharp video. When they had to be converted to broadcast TV standards of 1969, they did it by pointing a TV camera at the video screen. This is why the video looks so grainy and horrible. The magnetic tapes were moved to the National Archives in 1970. Just like the giant warehouse of wonders at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, they were never seen again. Until President Bush's recent decision to return to the moon, hardly anyone remembered they existed. They're not in the catalogue, and a thorough search hasn't found them. Naturally, the machines to read the tapes are about to be scrapped, and the tapes are degrading over time, so there's a rush. The rare videos show footage far more detailed than the now-famous images broadcast from Tranquility Base in July 1969. The pictures on the tapes are reportedly so sharp, viewers can see Neil Armstrong's reflection in Buzz Aldrin's visor. They're only seen by the scientists receiving them in Australia before they were blurred by pointing the camera at the screen, and then safely stored. In Bochum, Germany, astronomers revealed recently that they possess magnetic tapes of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Thilo Elsner, director of the Bochum Observatory, said we are one of the few places in the world with the raw images, not copies of copies, but direct signals from the moon. However, his agency has no video, only sound, of the Apollo 11. We've got pictures from Apollo 15 and the missions after that, he said. That US mission took off in 1971. The signals can only be picked up by the 20-metre antenna when the moon was visible from Germany. Close, but these are not the tapes that NASA are looking for. Now that NASA has launched a formal investigation, it seems that the key to finding the missing tapes rests with Australian music video producer Peter Clifton. Back in 1979, Clifton was working on a Pink Floyd video to go along with the smash album Dark Side of the Moon. He wanted some footage of Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon, so he sent away $180 and got back a half-hour reel of 16mm film from the Smithsonian. He had the idea that he could take segments out of Dark Side of the Moon and make them into a TV special. When he spoke to Australia's The Age, he said on a visit to Washington, I went to the Smithsonian and asked if they had any shots of rocket ships travelling. Well, we can give you the highlights of the moonshot. He never finished the Pink Floyd video, and the film sat in his vault for years. He didn't think any more of it until he saw the news on television. It turns out he has a copy of only a small fraction of the missing footage, but the fact that he got it from the Smithsonian has put investigators on the trail of where the rest of the tapes might be stored. Clifton is going again through his vault to find the original canister in which the film arrived, hoping that the information under the NASA logo will help investigators track down the 700 missing tapes before it's too late. Mint is the new morphine. A synthetic treatment inspired by ancient Greek and Chinese remedies could offer pain relief to millions of patients with arthritis and nerve damage, a new University of Edinburgh study suggests. The Greek scholar Hippocrates treated sprains, joint pains and inflammation by cooling the skin, and traditional Chinese remedies use mint oil to the same end. The new discovery is that cooling chemicals which have the same properties of mint oil have a dramatic pain-killing effect when applied in small doses to the skin. Unlike conventional painkillers, these compounds are likely to have minimal toxic side effects, especially as they're applied externally. 
This means they're ideal for chronic pain patients for whom conventional painkillers often don't work. The Edinburgh study sets out exactly how the mint oil compounds work. They work through a recently discovered receptor, which is found in a small percentage of nerve cells in the skin. This receptor, called TRPM8, is activated by cooling chemicals or cool temperatures and inhibits the pain messages sent from where the pain is. So the new treatment makes good use of the body's own mechanisms for killing pain. Professor Susan Fleetwood-Walker, who jointly led the study with Dr Rory Mitchell, said the discovery of pain-relieving properties of mint oil and related compounds has great potential for alleviating the suffering of millions of chronic pain patients, including those with arthritis or nerve damage or spinal injury. Conventional painkillers such as morphine are inexact in cases of chronic pain and simply lowering the temperature of the skin doesn't work so well. The discovery means that patients can be given low doses of of a powerful painkiller delivered through the skin without side effects. Clinical trials on the compounds should begin within the year. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. As we yawn and open our eyes in the morning, the brainstem sends little puffs of nitric oxide to another part of the brain, the thalamus. This is not quite the laughing gas sold as poppers in nightclubs. Like a computer booting up its operating system before running more complicated programs, the nitric oxide sets the stage for more complex brain operations. In the first moments of the day, sensory information floods the system, bright sunlight coming through the curtains, the time on the screeching alarm clock, and all of it needs to be processed and organised so the brain can understand its surroundings and begin to perform more complex tasks. The new study is done by Dwayne Godwin, an associate professor at the Wake Forest University and lead author of the study, which was funded by the National Eye Institute. Nitric acid, the little two-atom molecule, is partly responsible for our ability to perceive whatever it is we're sensing. The thalamus was thought to be a fairly primitive structure, sort of a gate that could either open and allow sensory information to stream into the cortex, the higher-functioning part of the brain, or cut off the flow entirely. Godwin says the new research shows it's more accurate to think of the thalamus not as a gate, but as a club bouncer, who doesn't simply allow a huge rush of people to go in or no one at all, but picks and chooses who to let in and out a bouncer on our doors of perception. Instead of vision being a process going straight from eye to cortex, it's more of a loop. This constitutes a new role for the thalamus in directing, not just modulating. While the study is the first to identify nitric oxide's role in the thalamus, elsewhere in the body it is already known to have an important, somewhat different function. The molecule is integral to controlling blood flow and is in fact the molecule Viagra targets in order to increase blood flow to other parts of the body. The teeny molecule may have other medical uses. It may help us understand what goes wrong in diseases of perception and cognitive processing, such as attention deficit disorder or schizophrenia, and it adds to our understanding of how we perceive the world around us. The rape rate has gone down by 85% in the United States over the past 25 years, and it's all because of easy access to pornography, according to Professor Anthony D'Amato of Northwestern University of Law. He points out that the pornographic movie that started off the X-rated movie business in America Deep Throat was released in 1972. In America, movie rental shops at first sold only adult movies. The availability of erotic magazines also sharply increased in numbers in the 70s and 80s. Then pornography became available on the internet, and now access is easy. Deep Throat has moved from an embarrassing trip to an adult theatre, downloaded to a private laptop near you. Professor D'Armato published a paper on the Social Sciences Research Network showing the correlation between states with high internet access and fewer cases of rape and states with low internet access and higher incidences of rape. Statistics are staggering but conclusive. Possible causes of this correlation may be that some people watching pornography may get it out of their system and have no need to actually go out and attack someone. Another possibility might be labelled the Victorian effect, 
The more that people covered up their bodies with clothes in Victorian days, the greater the mystery of what they looked like in the nude. The sight of a woman's ankle was considered shocking and erotic. But today, says Professor Darmato, internet porn has thoroughly demystified sex. The government commissions in the US and Australia have previously tried to show that exposure to pornographic materials produce social violence. The reverse may be true, that pornography has reduced social violence. Every now and then, a scientific film makes it into the cinemas. And when it does, the Diffusion team is there to review it for you. We sent our very own Jackie Hayes to see Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Yes, yes, yes. The former US Vice President Al Gore has come back to our attention. And uh, yeah, I went to see his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. So I'm just going to give you a bit of a background about Al Gore and where this documentary is coming from. And then I thought I would open it up to the panel where we have Vanessa Gardos, Jackie Peffer, Mark West and Ian Wolfe. And I will be your precipitation of knowledge. (laughs) 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 And hopefully I will make no more lame jokes. Okay, so Al Gore, when he was at Harvard University, he actually took a course by Professor Roger Ravel, who was one of the very first scientists who started measuring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And he said this was the first time that he ever realised that there was going to be problems in the future. And then, of course, we all know Al Gore went on to become the US Vice President during the Clinton administration and his famous loss to George W. Bush in 2000. And during his time as the Vice President, he, he did actually stick to his you know, all the knowledge he'd gained at Harvard University. And he did try to implement a carbon tax, which would modify the incentive for fossil fuel consumption. And he also was a big influence in the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. So what is this inconvenient truth, you might all be asking? Well, Gore has gone ahead and reviewed all the scientific evidence for global warming. He discusses the politics and the economics of global warming. And he also describes some very serious consequences which global climate change will produce in the future. So there you go, guys. As your precipitation of knowledge, is there any question that you would like to ask me? Was it good? (laughs) That was a hard question to start off with. Um, It was. It was very good. It made me come out of the cinema and really want to walk everywhere to get compact fluorescent light bulbs. And uh, to like start using public transport and stop using my car. But also as a scientist sitting in the cinema, I was just a little bit sceptical of a lot of the things he was saying. So does he have a scientific background or just come from the politic economic side? He does. He comes from the scientific point of view as well. Mm -hmm. There are actually a couple of quite difficult concepts to get your head around. For example, like a piece of ice floating in water. If it melts, then the water level doesn't rise at all. But if ice sitting on land melts, then the water level rises. And I think that is actually, for the listeners of Fusion, that's not a difficult concept because you're all damn smart. But for the American public, perhaps, you know, I'm just saying. And hello to our American listeners on the podcast as well. (laughs) Howdy. So you were saying that there were some parts of the film that you just found a little bit, stre- you know, that was stretching the truth. What sort of things did you pick up on? Okay, I'll give you two examples of something he mentioned. The first one 
was <laughs> he's talked about this is so sad he talked about polar bears drowning <laughs> he had this little animation that looked like the coca-cola polar bear <laughs> do you remember them from the advertisements anyway um and for the first time in 2004 polar bears were actually found drowned in near greenland and that had never been recorded before and he made the sort of link between less ice and the polar bears having to swim further and therefore like that was the reason why polar bears were starting to drown. Uh, I went and I looked up the <laughs> the journal that had the paper about polar bears drowning and I can actually quote from it. Would you guys like a quote from the polar bear journal? Please, Jackie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, stop begging. Um, <laughs> okay, so the scientists actually say, we believe the high mortality in 2004 was much more likely related to extreme demanding weather conditions such as high sea states and associated stormy weather rather than long-distance swimming as polar bears are considered such strong swimmers. So there you go. Like that, he's like blatantly manipulated the truth there. The second one that I want to point out is... He said that there is a definite link between the migration of disease and an increase in global temperature. And actually, people from the Harvard Medical School and from the National Academy of Sciences said that the spread of diseases is not certainly caused by climate change and the evidence is not even solid yet. So there's a couple of things where he's sort of extrapolated information that really doesn't necessarily support his case. Do you think it's worth it? I remember uh, in What the Bleep Do We Know, um, they, said, they said something along the lines that when water freezes, if you're really nice to it and you write nice words on the side of the bottle, it forms nice crystals. But if you're mean to the water, it, it forms ugly crystals when it freezes. So it's kind of a nice point that people should be nice to each other and to water. Do you think that Al Gore uh, maybe has... Maybe maybe some of this uh, scientific extrapolation is worth it? Can, yeah. I, can I take that one up? Um, yes. <laughs> Ian, Ian, go for it. You... Please. I think there's a trend with documentaries that don't make it to TV that go to the cinema that on TV they have to be balanced and at the movies they don't have to be and so they're ah. wildly overbalanced and what the bleep stretch the truth with things like Emoto, the Japanese artist who supposedly wrote nice things and got pretty ice crystals but who actually wrote nice things and selected the ice crystals that matched what he wrote uh, which is not what they said in the film so perhaps Al Gore was doing a similar thing with his PowerPoint presentation and selecting the bits and editing them so they sounded like his message because no one could go against him because he's at the movies. I don't think that you can put an inconvenient truth in the same category as what the bleep though <laughs> because in fact a lot of it is based on, I've, I've made a point of saying he stretched it a bit but most of it is based on proper science and I really think that we should do a lot of stuff to minimise our carbon dioxide emissions and we should be thinking of alternate energy and that's the main point in this documentary and I think that's a good point. So I don't think we should compare it to what the bleep. Isn't it a shame though that when, you've, when you're right that you still stretch the truth? Doesn't that yeah, but weaken then it, the argument? Well, if he's aiming his presentation to the general population which aren't as smart as diffusion listeners then perhaps they don't understand the really difficult concepts. Like, like pol- polar bears drowning, I mean, as you increase surface the surface area of water you also increase the wave height for a given wind speed so that will lead to polar bears drowning but just in a very roundabout way anyway an inconvenient truth opens on the 14th of september thursday so i recommend you all go and see it
cars and they're trying to get through. There's no single explanation, there's no central destination. But this long line of cars is trying to get through. And this long line of cars is all because of you. We don't wonder where we're going or remember where we've been. This traffic flowing and accept a little sin to be riddled with controversy. Religion has been the centre of hot topic and you can almost always guarantee a hullabaloo in sport. But controversy in science? Mark West reports on what's causing an uproar in the science community. Scientific controversies are actually quite common and throughout history, within and outside the scientific community, battles have raged over topics from Galileo versus the Catholic Church over the motion of the planets to Einstein not believing in quantum mechanics and current debates over global warming, intelligent design and stem cell research. But the controversy that we are dealing with today is astronomical in size yet deals with the runt of the litter. Whatever do we do with Pluto? A few months back, we all slept soundly in the knowledge that Pluto was a planet. But now things have changed, and Pluto has been demoted to a new class of heavenly body called a dwarf planet. 
Over the last month as I was travelling through India, I stayed up to date with the intense debate over how to classify a planet. The International Astronomical Union, the IAU, was meeting in Prague, and as remarkable as it may seem, there has never been a universally agreed definition of what a planet is. The union, which represents national astronomical unions and is the official authority for naming stars and other celestial bodies, decided to solve this problem. At one stage throughout the debate, it was almost agreed that there would be 12 planets, with the addition of three new bodies, the newly discovered world 2003 UB313, which is nicknamed Xena, Sharon, which is Pluto's moon, and Ceres, the largest of the asteroids in the asteroid belt near Jupiter. However, the final decision, which not only renounced this pronouncement, but also demoted Pluto, upset schoolchildren and provided work for textbook publishers world over. The IAU came out with the following rules that you must meet to qualify if you want to be a planet. A planet is a celestial body that A. is in orbit around the Sun, B. has sufficient mass for its own self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces so that it assumes a hydrostatic equilibrium, which means that it's nearly round, and C. has cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit. A dwarf planet, or planetoid, is a celestial body that is in orbit around the Sun, B. has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to overcome rigid forces so that it assumes a hydrostatic equilibrium, which means it's round, has not cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit and is not a satellite. The reason that Pluto was classified as a dwarf planet is that it did not meet our criteria C. It has not cleared its neighbourhood. The lead scientist on NASA's robotic mission to Pluto, Alan Stern, contends that even Earth, Mars, Jupiter and Neptune have not fully cleared their orbital zones. And so if we are going to demote Pluto, we should demote ourselves as well. However, there is a substantial difference between the extent to which Pluto has cleared out its neighbourhood with its gravitational pull and the amount of clearing done by these other planets. Indeed, the IAU debates clarified that this criteria refers to the process that happened during the formation of the planets and not to the bodies that may have strayed into these orbits after the planets were formed. It is this debris that is now in the orbit of these planets, unlike Pluto, which did not have enough gravity to clear its orbit of all other material during its formation. There is still plenty of stuff out there. The eight classical planets are all in the same plane, all travel in roughly circular orbits, and were all formed by the accretion of solar system material. In contrast, Pluto's orbit is highly inclined to this plane, up to 17 degrees above it, and it's non-circular. Indeed, sometimes it's closer to the Sun than Neptune is. Also, Pluto and its moon Charon is what is known as a Kuiper Belt object. The Kuiper Belt contains objects formed out in the far reaches of the solar system or ejected there by the gravity of Neptune or Jupiter. They are different beasts altogether. One controversy lies in the fact that the definition was only voted on by a very small percentage of the 9,000-strong union. I like the idea that the new rules specify that the planet must have enough gravity for it to be spherical. That is, it doesn't propose an arbitrary diameter for planet qualification. I also think that science is one of the most changing and dynamic disciplines that this world has, and we should not fight decisions simply because we are afraid of change or upset that a favourite cartoon character now represents a so-called lower form of planet. Science is always changing. I'm sure we'll see new definitions in the future. For me, so I quite like the change, but I'm not sure it was really necessary. Pluto was only a planet because it was the first of its kind discovered, but now we have new information... We should not be scared to change our thoughts about it. It doesn't make it any less scientifically significant. Indeed, the New Horizons probe, due to reach Pluto in 2015, will provide us with a lot of information on Kuiper Belt objects and how the solar system was formed. Anyway, I probably wouldn't have spent all that money and time on making this edict. 
but rather let people decide for themselves on how to designate a planet. In any case, it all changes when we discover different solar systems and new celestial bodies. And this debate sure beats debating politics. I'd always thought it was pronounced Charon rather than Sharon. I think in Australia we prefer to call it Sharon. Sharon. Or Shazza. Shazza. Shazza the moon. For very short. It's a dwarf planet. Or a planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. Has that just come into existence? Well, I think now it's going to be widely accepted. Perhaps science fiction used it. I don't know. <laughs> science fiction did use planetoid, but I don't think dwarf planet. It might be a new one. It's a little bit uh, diminutive, isn't it? Um, do you know how many people actually voted on this? Like, I love the idea that some people got around in Prague and decided that Pluto was no longer a planet. Well, it's part the of the whole voting system, like Big Brother all over again. You're voted out of the solar system. <laughs> you have 20 have seconds to leave the solar system. <laughs> 20. 19. I'm not going to count all the way down, guys. Maybe, maybe we should have it as a diffusion poll, and that should decide whether Pluto is or is not a planet. So if you'd like to SMS Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on now, Mark. What was your number there? <laughs> actually, yeah. the planets all went to the diary room for a while. <laughs> Do you know how many people actually voted on this? Uh, the con- that's part of the controversy. It was on- There's 9,000 people in the union, but only a very small percentage actually showed up to vote. Just like Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. scientific friends that's all we've got for you this week contributing this week was jackie hayes ian wolf mark west and vanessa gardos producing from her embroidered chair over here in the tercy studios was our Tilly berlin and we're sent across australia by the community broadcasting network our international listeners can catch us on itunes or feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusion radio i'm jackie pepper and i'll see you all again soon whatever may come Does it mean when you belong to someone?